Episode 195 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the American actor, director and author Paul Michael Glazer, who found global fame playing Detective Dave Starsky in the 1970s hit TV series Starsky and Hutch, which co-starred David Soule as Ken Hutch Hutchinson. Paul also directed several episodes of Starsky and Hutch and other series such as Miami Vice and Judging Amy and the movies The Running Man and The Cutting Edge. Films he's acted in include Fiddler on the Roof and Something's Gotta Give. Paul married his first wife Elizabeth in 1980. In August 1981 she contracted HIV through a blood transfusion while giving birth to their first child, Ariel. They didn't know about that until four years later, when Elizabeth and Ariel became ill. When the whole family were tested, Elizabeth, Ariel and her then one-and-a-half-year-old brother Jake were found to be HIV positive. Ariel died three years later, shortly after her seventh birthday, and Elizabeth died aged 47, in 1994. Jake survived. Paul also has a daughter Zoe by his second wife Tracy, though that marriage ended in 2007. This interview took place in 2012, when Paul had discovered other satisfying strings to his professional bow in writing and illustrating. Right now I'm doing a couple of things. I'm uh, in the middle of uh, marketing my book that uh, I self-published. It's Cristalia, The Source of Life. Okay, tell us in a nutshell what that's about, please. It's about a 14-year-old girl told in her voice mm-hmm. and her 9-year-old brother. It's the last Christmas of the mom who's not well. It's the last Christmas in the house because the bank is kicking them out and the girl's angry and bitter and only believes in what you can see and touch. The boy believes in the need to believe. Mm-hmm. On Christmas Eve, they find themselves on a journey through an underground medieval kingdom where everything and everybody are made of minerals and crystals in search of the source of light. Sounds like a good movie, too. That's uh, a good movie, a good musical, a good ballet, it's, you name it. Are you already working on the movie? Uh, no, right now I'm, uh, I'm uh, working on the second book. Right. Uh, I mean, I have a second book of mine, but it's not Cristalia. But Cristalia is a uh, is a series of five books. It's kind of a Harry Potter type thing. Okay. Well, how come this has all suddenly come from within you at this time in your life? Well, you know, um, I wrote this as a screenplay about 12 years ago. Then I realized that we didn't have the technology at the time to animate the properties of light, so I decided to write it as a book, thinking it would have a little more imprimatur on it. And as I wrote the book, I began to realize that uh, uh, it was a great vehicle for me to share what I'd learned about loss and suffering and helplessness. So I decided to uh, to write a book to the child in all of us. And I, uh, I, I tried to create something in the classic tradition of Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. so that everyone could read it. It's marketed mainly 9 to 15, but it's it's great for the whole family to take down and read 
to and with each other. Why have you self-published? Uh, well, well, initially I went to publishers and I said, look, this is this story and these are the ancillary rights and this is what it's all about. But I, I discovered that the publishing world was as creatively bereft as the film world. So... <laughs> So I decided to uh, uh, I decided to self-publish. Hmm. That was the primary reason I decided to self-publish. The okay. other reason is that I wanted to uh, retain the licensing uh, hmm. on the project because it it has an awful lot of potential. It's in a novel world, a world that people really haven't seen before. You know, we all tend to say, "There's my local rock or crystal shop hmm. in the neighborhood. I can go there and get." You know, some common crystals, some quartz, some amethyst, a few fossils. And what people don't realize is that any color, texture, hue, form, or shape that you can possibly imagine, make up in your mind, already exists underground. It's an amazingly varied world. The ability to explore that world and exploit that world with all its... Uh, uh, all its variations uh, was something very real. It's a number one genre, action mm. fantasy. Wow. It's uh, a philosophy, a uh, teaching that I that I learned and I wanted to share with people. Mm -hmm. Because at its core, the book asks and answers the question, what is the purpose of fear in our lives? And there's an awful lot of fear in the world today. So yeah. I thought, and there's a lot of hopelessness also. So I thought, well, this would be an ideal way to share this this lesson that I've learned. Do you feel that writing is more your future now than appearing on screen or directing or whatever? Well, you know, uh, the thing about writing is that you're very much your own master. Yes. You know, you're, you're hired to act, uh, and unless you're an auteur, which I always wanted to be as a director, but I never quite got there, ageism being what it is in our society, you know, I, I just didn't want to sit around and wait the phone ring so that I could experience myself creatively. So I decided to uh, do something that I enjoyed very much as a kid. I loved writing. Mm. And uh, so I decided to uh, give that a whack, and uh, and I've enjoyed it. And then I discovered uh, I'd written this uh, in between drafts of Crystallia. I'd written another book mm -hmm. that came out of me. So my daughter said, Dad, you should illustrate it. So I thought, okay. So I've been studying drawing for quite a while now. Really? Trying to get myself to the point where I could take my hand off the paper and uh, say, okay, that's the best I could do and move on. But I, I do enjoy the drawing a lot, too. Paul, a lot of people here in the UK will want to know when you're next on screen. When can we next see you? Well, I don't know. That's what I was starting to say. Uh, you're very much at the beck and call of other people. Hmm. And so if somebody wants to see me, they can uh, pick up the phone, and here I am. <laughs> Man for hire. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a thing that I, I really don't pursue anymore because it's, it's too frustrating, and you, you don't want to spend all your time you know, waiting for you know, the, the world to happen. Mm. You kind of get to get out, get out there and do it yourself. I came over there and did a panto of uh, Peter Pan a few years back, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. I'd love to do a reprise of that role of Captain Hook, you know. And there are other stage versions I'd like to do. Film, uh, you know, film is where and when it happens. You just don't have any control over it. Mm. I have a project book that I'm halfway through that. Uh, 
started out as an idea for something that I could do, a, a, a kind of a, an American in Paris type of Raymond Chandler-esque tongue-in-cheek type of thing. Mm -hmm. where, you know, but uh, I've lived long enough now that I know that uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and you can only assert yourself and your creative energies within your circle. You can't, you can't make things happen that uh, aren't going to happen or they're not meant to happen. And uh, so I, I like it. I like being able to write and draw. I've always enjoyed acting. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I love directing. And the same thing applies to that. Um, I gather your, your father was an architect. Was there any yeah, show business in your family at all? Well, not that you could point to and say this person, uh, you know, starred in this or starred in that. I think my mother was always a big supporter of the arts and the performing arts. And so as children, we were always exposed to it. And uh, one of my two elder sisters for a while wanted to be an actress, and I think that might have had some influence on me. Right. And how did your parents feel about you going into show business? Oh, they were pretty cool about it. I mean, they were very, they wanted me to be happy. That's all they really cared about. They were, they were supportive. Did they, they live to see you successful? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They lived to see me do uh, Fiddler on the Roof and Starsky and Hutch. So I guess you could say the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, did you do a sort of Elvis-style gesture and buy them a nice house when you got successful? No, they uh, they were okay by themselves, you know. Uh, they uh, my father was fairly uh, successful in his work. I did give him a golf cart. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was there something they, they, uh, that you saw as a child that uh, made you think that's what I want to do, like a movie or a play or something? You know, when I was a kid, I used to watch. You know, I I, I thought movies and, and uh, you know all that. Everything from Errol Flynn to, uh, you know, the Westerns and all of that. I think that that was a, that was, that seemed to be a, uh, an alternate reality that would be fun to play in. Hmm. And you got two degrees, is that two university degrees, is that correct? Yeah, well, unofficially, yes. I got, kept jumping back and forth from one major to another when there was a course that I didn't want to take. And uh, by the end, I'd accumulated enough hours for uh, English literature and for theater. What did you think you would go on to do? Oh, gosh, I don't know. You know, I had it in my head I was going to be an actor, and I was going to, you know, be successful and like that. And, uh, you know, along the way, I, I dabbled in a little directing and then uh, yeah. like that. When I, when I did the series, uh, I decided that, I'd be much happier doing directing, and so I started using the series as a place to learn directing, mm. and like that. Um, is it true that you were roommates with Gwyneth Paltrow's dad and Andy Summers? Uh, not Andy, but with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's dad. Yes, I might have been. I might have been. I, Andy had said something. Had said something to me about that once, and I. My memory is so foggy, but I was, you know, I, I, I definitely a roommate with roommates with Bruce. Bruce is no longer with us, and I haven't seen uh, Andy Summers for ages. Did you go and see the police in concert or anything? I did uh, a few years back. Yeah. How was it? I'm not uh, a, uh, a great concert goer, but uh, I enjoyed myself. 
Um, I gather you sort of made your debut on Broadway, wasn't it? Your, your sort of your break was on Broadway, is that right? I don't know. I didn't do a lot of Broadway. I did uh, a play called Man of the Glass Booth with Donald Pleasant, how Pinter directed. And I had a small role in that. I was on stage all the time, but it was a small role. Then uh, I did uh, the uh, director in Butterflies Are Free. Mm-hmm. Those are not remarkable roles. At that time, I was in New York, and I was trying to break in as an actor. So I was doing off-off-Broadway and off-Broadway and Broadway and mm. that sort of stuff. But for a young actor to appear on Broadway must be a massive thrill and sense of accomplishment. Well, I'll put it to you this way. Opening night of Butterflies Are Free, I felt like I was being shot from a cannon. <laughs> you were terrified. Oh, my God. Yeah. Did you hope to sort of stay within theatre, or did you prefer that the screen, did that appeal to you more? Well, I thought I wanted uh, the theatre. And then I got a, a taste of the film. My first film was Fiddler on the Roof. And I was very put off by the whole being an actor in film type thing. I felt like there was a lot of sitting around and waiting. And so uh, that's when I decided to, uh, to start writing and uh, to try to pursue a directing career. Mm. What a debut, though, Fiddler on the Roof. Not a bad first movie, is it? No, no, not at all. Good for me. <laughs> <laughs> what were your memories of that? Uh, my memories were a long time in Yugoslavia. <laughs> Uh, a short time in London, in pre-records mm-hmm. and in post. You know, we, uh, we filmed in uh, Pinewood for, uh, I guess, a month and a half or something in, yeah. uh, uh, after we shot in Yugoslavia. It was a very interesting experience. I mean, in retrospect, it was, uh, it was an age gone by. You know, United Artists were producing, and they, at that time, they would rather deal with the expense of keeping everybody on location. So we were on location for a long time. And uh, that was an experience in and of itself. How much did it help your career? Well, I think it definitely put me on the map. I came back to the States, out here in Hollywood. Spelling and Goldberg wanted me to do a series, and I didn't want to do a series, so I kept turning things down, and I was waiting for my next film role. So it definitely put me on the map. You appear to have done more movies than TV. Was that something deliberate, that you preferred that form? Uh, I found television at the time. I mean, television has you know, definitely changed a lot, but I, I, I felt at the time that there was nothing theatrical about, about television. It was, just, it, was a, a, it was a small medium, and it belonged more to pop culture. And, uh, you know, at the time, I guess I was more attracted to things with larger themes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, pop culture doesn't come more obvious than Starsky and Hutch. That, did you resist that initially when it was offered to you? Well, uh, at the time, I'd been turning down series, and uh, when it was uh, suggested to me, I thought, okay, I hadn't worked in front of a camera for a while, so I decided I wanted to find, uh, I wanted to see how quiet I could be in front of a camera, how still. So I thought, okay, I read the pilot, I thought this will never be a series. <laughs> and I did the pilot as a, you know, it's a backdoor pilot, a two-hour movie, mm-hmm. television movie. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> Were you and David always the obvious people for those roles, or did they ever consider anyone else who's well-known? 
I don't know. I don't know. I know that they were on a search for someone to play Starsky. And uh, they cast David first. Right. Such, and then they were still looking, and then I came along. And, of course, the chemistry between the two of you was fantastic. Was that instant the moment the two of you met? Well, David and I had known each other. Our paths had crossed for a few years uh, in the business. Right. You know, we were friends, and uh, you know, we didn't hang out together or anything, but uh, it just all clicked. And whose idea was the knitted cardigans? Oh, I wore that. Uh, I had one, uh, and when I came to, uh, to audition for the role, I wore one. And uh, when we went to pilot, I decided there and then that I wanted to be really comfortable. <laughs> so I just stayed as comfortable as I could. Through the whole series, I stayed as comfortable as I could. Do you still David have... was a clothes horse. I... No, I don't. I don't have uh, that uh, anymore. Hmm. And uh, did you ever injure yourself jumping on the front of those cars? I didn't injure myself jumping in cars, but I had my share of things. David was, uh, David was the one who injured himself jumping on cars. <laughs> <laughs> you had an absolutely incredible following at the time. Um, what was your most memorable fan experience during that series? Gee, I don't know. I, you know, I don't remember a whole hell of a lot, to, to be honest with you. I, my most incredible fan experience. I mean, did you get mobbed everywhere you went? Did you uh, ever find a girl in your wardrobe or...? Well, I found a little of this and a little of that, but uh, yeah, you know, it was uh, we were the next, the next thing since sliced bread, so there was going to be all of that. There was going to be, uh, you know, the the press and the, the the fans and all of that business. So you know, that existed. Uh, the show went to sixty-seven countries around the world, so hmm. uh, it was, uh, you know, it was it was pretty big. How much fan mail did you get? A lot. <laughs> Anything memorable? A lot. No, no. I mean, yes and no. I mean, it, you know, it was fan mail. Mm. <laughs> Proposals of marriage, <laughs> I expect. Everything. Yeah. David, of course, had some hit records. Was it ever considered that the two of you would duet or you would have a solo career as well? No, uh, David was a singer on the set. You know, he was. that was his thing. Mm. For a while there, I was trying to do Jim Croce's story oh, as right. a film. Yeah, interesting. But it never came together. And do you have a favorite episode of Starsky? Um, I don't know that I do, or I, I you know, I don't know. Uh, no, I don't, you know, I think there are probably ones that I like better than others. I don't remember all of a lot. When we were making the show, I never watched it. Really? The only ones I watched were the ones that I directed. Right. And have you watched it since? Have you watched it in recent years? Oh, once in a while, when it's on, I'll, I'll you know, I'll watch it and, uh, you know, cringe at some things and laugh at others. <laughs> what did you make of the movie from a few years ago when Ben Stiller played you? I was very complimented. I know that Ben was a big fan and wanted to uh, really do it justice, and, uh, and he and Owen, you know, were terrific together. And, you know, they, they wanted to make a film that was, was less spoof and more... Um, more an attempt to create that relationship. But I think that as much as they wanted to do that, their director didn't quite see it that way and, and took it in the other direction. It probably would have been very difficult to have, to have recreated that relationship from the 70s because that was the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what is your relationship with David these days? 
David and I see Dinosaur a week ago. Did he? Over here, and uh, you know, we always like to see each other. It's a long and and uh, enduring friendship. Yeah. You, do you think you'll always have a bond between the two of you? Oh, for sure. Yeah, he's a really nice guy, isn't he? He is a lovely guy. He's very bright, very talented. He's got a good heart. And you also worked with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I did. Any memories of him that you want to share with us? <laughs> no, it's okay. I'll in- invoke Will Rogers, if you don't mind. Oh, you didn't sort of stay friends with him. He wasn't handy when he became mayor of uh, California or whatever it was. Governor. Governor, sorry. Yeah, no, no, I, uh, I, I have not remained friends with Arnold. Well, you, you worked with Diane Keaton as well. That was an amazing uh, experience, I should imagine. Yeah, Diane's lovely, lovely person. I love her. We had a great time, and uh, she was, she's a good girl. Hmm. Did you ever fancy going into politics, by the way, Paul? No. No, 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 no. I, I don't think I have the patience for it. But you've met quite a few very serious politicians, haven't you? You've met a few presidents in your time, I think. Yeah, yeah, I have, and, uh, you know... All the power to them. I don't. I, I. I find it intriguing, what makes a politician a politician. That's mm. not a. That's not a place where I would like to go. Mm. I read a lovely story about the way you met your first wife, Elizabeth. Would you care to remind us of that? I just finished doing the pilot of Starsky and Hutch, and I was leaving the studio, and I was on little Santa Monica Boulevard, and I pulled up next to this BMW, and uh, there was this girl, and uh, I smiled at her, and she smiled at me. <laughs> I pulled her over and asked her for a license and registration, and that was it. <laughs> and were it not for tragic circumstances, do you think that the, you'd still be a happy family today? Don't know. I don't know. I'm very impressed with how much we grow and change, and... Uh, and uh, the different priorities in life and like that. I mean, the whole experience of, uh, of HIV and uh, that, uh, everything that my family went through and I went through, you know, changed me markedly. I am a much different person now than I would have been uh, had that not happened to me. So I, I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to hypothesize or to, to guess at what might have been. How did you deal with it at the time? And looking back now, do you think you should have dealt with it in a different way, or do you think you chose the right path in that? I don't think at the time I perceived myself as having choice. Now, at this point in my life, I understand that choice is a, a, a very real thing for us. That it's a, it's a real alternative, and it's something that we need to uh, understand so we can empower ourselves. But at the time, I think I was uh, surviving, and I was reacting and surviving as best I could. And I was lucky enough to, along the way, you know, meet people that really helped me understand and helped me through uh, all the different levels of, of uh, emotions and things that I, that I was dealing with. You know, I, you obviously make some make choices, but I wasn't conscious of those choices. I, you know, I knew I had my family that I had to you know, and wanted to, you know, stand by. And uh, that was not, uh, didn't, I didn't perceive that as a choice. That was something that I, uh, that uh, was just who I was. In retrospect, 
Yeah, I guess I did make a choice. And uh, actually, uh, as I started to learn all the things I learned about my journey, things that I've tried to share in Cristalia, I began to realize that uh, acknowledging the fact that I had the ability to make choices and that I did make choices allowed me to find more empathy for myself, more compassion for myself and my journey. And when you worked for the Pediatric AIDS Foundation in your wife's name, how much did that help you cope? It's uh, a good question. I, I, I don't know if uh, there are things I felt I had to do. And uh, it's always better to be active and to be doing something than uh, you know, sitting on your hands. Yes, and uh, I, I think that that was uh, valuable. I, I, it was very important to me because the foundation had been founded to save, in an attempt to save the lives that saved my son's life. Mm. And uh, you know, I wanted to ensure that that was that the foundation was able to have a future. And uh, at the time, enough drugs had been found that people were fostering the illusion that the, the, the virus and the disease had been uh, handled by the doctors and scientists and there's nothing left to wor be worried about, which was the farthest thing from the truth because viruses mutate. And so the issue had become trying to find a way to uh, uh, underline the relevancy of HIV research and uh, in order to keep moving forward. That was a challenge that I wrapped my arms around and we uh, did everything we could and uh, like that. What is the situation with the foundation now? It's still thriving. It's changed a little bit of its direction as most foundations do, you know, when they lose their uh, initial leader or founder. The passion and, the, and all of that kind of give way to, you know, more bureaucratic organization and uh, and branding and uh, the desire to challenge the status quo becomes uh, you know less immediate you know Elizabeth her attitude was don't ask why ask why not right. and uh, you know don't try to figure out you know whether you can afford something make up your mind you're gonna do it and then figure out how to pay for it mm. So that kind of attitude did not prevail once, uh, once she had gone, and so that the agenda became more of the dissemination of information and various medicines around the world, which is another valid cause. Unfortunately, research money is the hardest money to find, and the foundation was not only very well suited to do that, but it, uh, Elizabeth had, had, uh, had uh, created this... Uh, collaborative interdisciplinary research that uh, allowed scientists to work together mm. and researchers to work together and uh, we wanted when she was gone we I wanted myself and uh, uh, Phil Pizzo who is the, now the dean of Stanford Medical School we wanted to set up a network of hospitals teaching hospitals and we came up with five and then we figured out all the legal issues about intellectual property rights and fundraising so that we didn't conflict or cause these universities any loss. And the whole idea was not only do you get institutions to collaborate, but you also look at the diseases, the fact that diseases collaborate. So mm. it was more of a holistic approach. The idea being you learn 
an awful lot from other diseases when you research HIV and vice versa. Mm. And it seemed very logical and the, the right thing to do, but I think it was a bit ahead of its time because and it also required one to have an awful lot of faith because, as you know, research is something that you... There's no guarantees, mm. none whatsoever, and, and you will, uh, you know, you'll lose more money than you make most of the time. Mm. But uh, it's very necessary, and, and, and with the world economy the way it is today, that's become a rarity that you get, uh, that you get people prioritizing research, uh, you know, they, they tend to want to uh, maintain the status quo and not take chances and not, not trying to reach beyond themselves. I'm not saying everybody, but I'm saying that seems to be the social and economic inclination. Because of what you went through personally, do you feel that perhaps show business took a step back from you and they, they weren't giving you as many jobs as perhaps they could be doing because they thought you'd be struggling? You know, I, at that time... When the story broke, I was full on into my directing. And a dear friend of mine who produced uh, one of the films I ended up directing, when he interviewed me, uh, it was a romantic comedy. And I said to him, I said, there's an elephant in the room, you know. Mm. You don't know if I can direct a romantic comedy with my daughter having died, my wife uh, and son in jeopardy. And he said, yeah, that's, that's, that's the elephant. And... Uh, you know, we talked about it, and to his credit, he decided to uh, have me direct the film. Mm. And it came out really well. So, you know, that was there, and I, and where, where it was there that I wasn't, a, I'm sure it was there and I wasn't aware of it in other instances. But uh, as I say, I wasn't aware of it, so I didn't pay any attention to it. Would you like to have done more directing, more acting, or, or are you quite satisfied with the way things have gone work-wise? Well, I love directing, I've got to tell you. And I like acting, too. Uh, but I, I, uh, I would love to be able to direct something again in my life. And I would always love to get on the bicycle and, and, and play a little bit with, with acting. Uh, acting, to me, is something that I was fortunate enough to be, uh, you know, uh, a decent actor. And, uh, you know, and you, never, you never tire of that stuff. But uh, as I said before, you know, it's, uh, it's not something that I, you know, sit up at night wonder where it's going to come from. What do you think is your I greatest really, achievement as an actor? My greatest achievement as an actor? Yeah, what's, what do you look back on think that was, that really gave a fantastic performance there or whatever? Wow, that's a good one. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I know. I know there were formative performances. There was a, years ago when I was first starting out and I was doing repertory theater at Harvard at the Harvard, the Loeb Drama Center in the mm -hmm. summertime. I was playing two roles in repertory. I was playing uh, Thomas Mendip in The Ladies Not for Burning. Mm -hmm. And I was playing Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. And Ladies Not for Burning was all about beautiful poetry. The writing was amazing and the costumes were great. And I got to, you know, jump around in tights and be Errol Flynn and I thought that was great. And Raskolnikov was a very, you know, a very dark performance. Well, Raskolnikov, Crime and Punishment, the director, bless his heart, didn't really have a clue what he was doing. And so by the time opening night came along, I, I didn't know what to do. And I remember, I remember standing behind the, the curtain uh, before it went up, and I thought to myself, 
well, I guess the only thing I could do is just treat this as another rehearsal. And that was a, like a watershed moment because then, mm. you know, then all of a sudden it became about the here and now and, uh, you know, and, and I just understood an awful lot about it. But was there a role that I, no, I, I you know, there were some roles that had some things. Uh, I never saw myself as a, you know, I'm not, you know, a Christopher Walken or a Johnny Depp. These are people that are, you know, that are really interesting people and that are uh, that uh, have many facets to their personalities mm-hmm. that uh, that enjoy experiencing them in that in that world my fantasy was oh i can do that i can do that but clearly my path was not that and uh, you know it's interesting and sometimes you know people come up to me and say god you played this bad guy you were so good <laughs> Well, of course, bad guys are the easiest thing in the world to play. Yeah. We all have a dark side. So, mm-hmm. or let's say it's easiest for me to play. I love the dancing on the bubble. To the way I described it, you know, Cary Grant was was someone who I loved watching because mm-hmm. he was his timing was immaculate, and I thought, you know, that, and that's why I described Starsky and Hutch when I would do these these little riffs and these these yeah. light things, uh, and I would describe it as dancing on the bubble. When I did Hook in um, Panto, yeah. I just loved uh, sending the character up and, mm-hmm. and having him sending himself up, and and uh, you know, and I'd never sung on stage before, and I'd always wanted to, so that was a trip. Mm. Do you think the popularity of Starsky and Hutch sort of affected people's attitude towards you as an actor? It sort of perhaps they thought you were quite light-hearted, but in fact, you there was a lot more to you than just that character. I suppose you know. I don't know. You know, they always talk about that, about typecasting and about, you know, uh, success in one area. And I, and I would have to say that that's true a lot of the time. I mean, it, it's all in the eye of the beholder. You know, somebody is looking at you and all they see is the light side. Another person looks at you and sees the really sensitive side. I mean, <laughs> there's no... I didn't pay enough attention to it. I knew what I was about and I knew what I could do. And if people couldn't see that, then fine, I was going to move on. You, you, you really can't control people's perceptions. Mm. But you're obviously, like with this book you've written, you're obviously thinking about life at the moment a great deal. You've had an incredible professional life, you've been hugely successful, and you've had some terrible traumas in your personal life. How do you weigh that up? How do you come to terms with that? Well, uh, each life is a journey, yes? Everybody has a journey. And all journeys are relative. None are more horrific than others, unless... They're judged that way from someone on the outside, but for the person on the inside, they're just doing their best to get by. Uh, in the sum of things, would have me say that I uh, have had fantastic opportunities, and I've been very fortunate. And not the least of those opportunities, not the least of those incidents of fortune, would be my journey with HIV and AIDS and losing part of my family and yeah. and having to go through all that because that. That kind of took me to the nub of things. That that said, you you have a choice here. You can either be a victim or not. Not that that's something you achieve and you've achieved it and it's done. It's something you have to wake up to every day and 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 and, and pay attention to. And some days are more successful than others. But I I, as I said earlier, I would never be the person I am today without having gone through you know what I've gone through and. I would never have been able to invite Castalia, I don't think. I mean, I, or, or, or any of the, 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 any of the, I wouldn't be able to have the perceptions that I have. But this is true for everybody. 
this is true for everybody, you know. And, uh, you know, I was, as I said, I was fortunate. I had, you know, really great teachers. I, I, I learned something that is, that uh, in Cristalia I wanted so badly to share with the world because it's something that's very real. It's the mm. way we relate to fear and, and what fear is in our lives. And, uh, you know, uh, that became for me a something that I not only came to learn and understand, but it's something, as I just said, that I have to practice all the time myself. Yeah. Um, how is your son Jake these days? Jake's doing well. Jake's doing well. He's got a bunch of things interesting him, and he's, uh, he's doing well. You know, he, he handles his ride, and he's, uh, you know, he's got a lot on his plate. And he's quite a remarkable kid, I have to say. Well, he's yeah. not a kid anymore. He's 27. Yeah. And how is his health, though? Is it okay? His health's good. His right. health's good. Yeah. And you have a daughter, Zoe. I have a daughter, Zoe. She's 15. Mm-hmm. And do both of them and live with you? Uh, no. No, no, no. Zoe lives with her mother, and Jake lives, he has a, a, an apartment with a buddy of his. How much do you see of them? I see Jake a lot. I see Jake every, uh, I went to the movies with him last night, actually. Zoe, I haven't seen for a bit, but uh, she's doing well. And how likely are they to follow in your footsteps and become an actor or whatever? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that, you know, hey, I could be dead wrong, but one of the blessings of life is that when something happens that you feel you absolutely have to do, you, you are compelled, you have a passion, you have a drive, you have a need. And when you can identify that place in yourself and whatever it is that, that takes you there, that's a really a benefit. I was... You know, I had that as a kid. You know, I was driven. I, I can't say uh, it was the, uh, I don't know. It's a, you know, so, you know, Jake is finding his way, and he's, you know, very committed to helping others and, and to uh, really contributing uh, to uh, the life on this planet and the mm. journey. And uh, Zoe is finding herself. She's only 15. She, she's very bright. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your home. How long have you lived there? Well, I'm living right now in an apartment in Venice. I've been here for five years. Uh, it's uh, relatively small. It's really delightful, actually. It's my daughter, when she first saw it, said, Dad, you're a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm living with a lot less and enjoying it a lot more. Right. And how much memorabilia are you surrounded with in your flat, your apartment? Zero. Really? Do you not keep stuff Zero. from from your career? No. Why is that? No, no, no. no. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I, I'm lying to you. In the bathroom, there is one picture, two pictures. One picture of me uh, hugging one of my dogs, and another picture of me when we were shooting an episode where I was playing a doctor, uh, a director on Starsky and Hutch, mm-hmm. and uh, wearing a beret and a scarf and the sunglasses, and I got this khaki jacket on and I got my arms spread out and a big smile and I I keep that because it reminds me of how while I was learning directing how much of the time I was really <coughs> playing a director and uh, it's just kind of a, you know it's kind of like reminds me it's a humbling picture it's like it's uh, it looks like a goof but it, it just it reminds me but I don't have anything else around that I can think of I have uh a few things in the closet, but I don't ever look at them. You know, that was then. This is now. I, I, don't, uh, I don't find myself lingering on this stuff very much.
How much do you get recognized when you're out and about? Well, if I'm out and about outside of Los Angeles, a fair amount. Right. Los Angeles, is, they're used to seeing all of these, these showbiz people. But uh, when I'm out and about, you know, I, I still look sort of like I looked back then. So, you know, people <laughs> recognize me. And what do they want to know when they speak to you? Uh, how am I? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I guess the primary thing they want to know is they want to know whether they're right, that I am, in fact, who I am. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they want to tell me all about themselves, which is fine. Yeah. If I'm right in calculating, you're going to be 70 in March. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> How do you feel about it? I'm amazed. I'm amazed. You know, sometimes I don't feel 70. I'm told I don't look 70, but mm. uh, that's a number. And mm. Maybe that's all it is. It's just a number. But to whatever degree we are into numbers, to, we ascribe to numeric judgment, and uh, that's where I am. I'm mm. 70. How will you celebrate? Oh, I won't celebrate much at all. I mean, I'll celebrate with probably my son and my daughter go out for a bite to eat I try to celebrate my life every day it's probably the better way to express it you know uh, some days are better than others but uh, that's what I do I, uh, that's probably why I like writing and drawing right now is because the kind of meditative experiences you kind of get to, get to you know see what experience yourself on a, on a page do you keep yourself fit and healthy? Most of the time I do. Most of the time I do. I kind of go in spurts. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll work out for a while and then I'll stop for a while. I'll work out for a while and stop for a while. Yeah. Do you think you'll ever write your autobiography? I don't remember enough to write it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you have to say that, that my... Chrysalia certainly metaphorically is a lot of an autobiography because it's, it speaks to this big lesson that I learned. Mm. Well, these lessons that I learned. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, people have asked me many times, and I, I suppose if I wanted to, I could always like take sodium pentothal or something, <laughs> and have someone regress me hypnotically or something, and I could remember all this stuff. Although I don't know that I'd want to go through a lot of it again. But uh, I don't. I, I don't. I don't know. I, I'm not. Uh, as I say, my memory isn't that great. Why isn't your memory that? Is that because you've been through so much? Yeah, I kind of related to it. You know, I kind of related to what it must have been like to be in battle. You know, you don't know if you're going to survive. You just keep your head down, put one foot in front of the other, and keep going. Yeah. I mean, do you want to live to a ripe old age? Do you want to live to be a very old sage? I don't know. I don't know. I think I do. I think that... At the end of the day, existence, you know, the phenomenon of existence is so amazing. Mm. If you, you know, we, we tend not to, to, to focus on this unless we're like having an epiphany or we're in the holidays or, you know, there's some great transition going on in which we are, you know, we are experiencing big highs and big lows. And that's when we look around and we go, wow, look at that. And look at the sunset. And isn't life grand? And like that but the, the amazing thing to me as I get older is more and more I find myself looking at the world around me 
and my experiences of the world and what it looks like, and I just am absolutely, you know, blown away by this phenomenon called existence. Mm. Do you believe in life after death? I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that anything the human mind can think of or will think of has existed, will exist, or does exist. All right. I think that an idea is another form of energy, and an artifact is an, is an idea that's achieved uh, a mass. I often find myself saying to people, can you imagine where thought becomes matter? Well, if, you, if you're in the process of trying to conceive of what, what that is, where thought becomes matter, in that moment, that's where you are. I, I, I believe that anything the human mind thinks of, as I said, exists, has existed, will ex does exist. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know that it's going to be a life that we recognize or that we, one is able to recognize in one's present ego and one's present mind. That's a bit of a fantasy, you know, and that we die and now we can, we can remember everything and see everything and all of that. I don't know what happens there. I've read enough about after-death experiences to think that there is definitely um, levels of awareness that exist in the dying process and after the dying process. I don't know anything about it, but I do believe that in as much as a thought or an idea is an expression of energy, then the journey from that to becoming matter, becoming mass, is uh, academic. It's, you know, it's maybe it's a question of enough people have the idea, then it starts to be, it starts to culminate into some kind of mass or matter. May we know if you've felt the presence of Elizabeth and Ariels since they've left you? Well, I always, not always, but I, you know, I, I, you know, I have conversations, you know, with them uh, occasionally. Hmm. You know, uh, is it my memory of them, or uh, is it, uh, you know, they're actually coming to me? I think it's all one and the same. You experience someone's energy over a period of time you know, and they experience yours, and together you've created a, a, a thing called a relationship. You've created an, an energy which sustains. The echo might die a little bit, but, uh, you know, I find myself at times, you know, acknowledging, thanking, sometimes even swearing at my parents. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, uh, I, look, it's all, again, whatever we think of, it's all there. It's not right nor wrong. It's not good nor bad. Our biggest challenge in this life is to learn how to witness our existence without judging it, and you know, and like that. Uh, it's, it's all there. But when you say you have conversations, what's it, do you mean? Like, why did you leave me? Kind of conversations, or how can no, I deal with this? No, 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 no. It's usually how are you? Right. I love you. How are you? Do you feel uh, you get responses? Well, I provide the response, don't I? Now, that is the response that I provide. It's not even a question of a response, like a, 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 a literal response, like words. It's more like just an understanding, a knowing that, that they're there in me. Yeah. You know, because there's no... It would be presumptuous of me to... Uh, well, actually, actually, when you think about it, if you would ask 
an imagined person that's come before you that you've known that's died, that's mm -hmm. transitioned to something else, uh, and say, why did you leave me? If you said, if you asked that, wouldn't the, uh, the answer I would get back was, why not? And does it really make a difference? Because you can't argue with the fact that something happens. Mm. You can only look at your reaction to it and the way your ego, your mind, your conditioning interprets it and judges it. The question, why did you leave me, has an inherent judgment in it. Mm. But it's sort the of understandable is, when you're in times of deep grief, isn't it? I oh, abso absolutely. Mm. However, mm. when you're in the times of great turmoil and great transition, at How those times it becomes really, really important to be able to tap into your consciousness, your awareness that, you know, one of the things I talk about in Cristalia, or the main thing I talk about when I talk about fear, and this is a really, I think, a really beautiful uh, concept, and it's a practicing concept. No, this is something that you can apply to your everyday life, your every hour, minute, whatever. And that is, it goes like this. We often say words like, I am scared, I am afraid. But that's not what we mean. What we mean is a part of us is scared. Part of us is afraid. And if we look, we can give it a color. We can even give it a perimeter. We can say, well, it's around my belly or it's around my chest or whatever, hmm. wherever we're feeling it. And then if we look further, we can point to areas of our existence or ourselves that are not afraid, be it as simple as the back of our ear or the top of our nose. So then it leads to the question, well, what part of us allows us to make this distinction between the part that's scared and the part that's not scared? Mm -hmm. And the thing that allows us to make that distinction is our awareness, our consciousness, our innate human gift. And from this place, when we are able to acknowledge that it's fear, because mm -hmm. a lot of the times we're in denial, we don't want to know about it, when we can acknowledge it, we then have the ability not to be helpless, but to make a choice. And the choice is to say to ourselves, good for you, good mm -hmm. for you for being able to carry on, to seek faith and to seek hope, to look for light, to try to live in the face of your helplessness, in mm -hmm. the face of your mortality. That, of course, is the key fear. It's the big fear. Mm -hmm. The other fears are kind of poor cousins and distant relatives, but helplessness is the fear that I think is, you know, is the, that's the big granddaddy. And when we can acknowledge our willingness and our courage to carry on in the face of that fear, we have the ability to find compassion for ourselves. And by extension, we can find compassion for others. Mm -hmm. So we don't judge the fear. We, instead of judging it, we say we support ourselves in the fact that we carry on. So the purpose of fear in our lives is to awaken ourselves to our consciousness or our awareness and gives us the opportunity to choose our hearts or love. That's what makes us human. How religious are you, Paul? Because one imagines your faith would have been severely rocked many years ago. Well, I'm very spiritual. The word religious this is a difficult word because it connotes an adherence to some specific religion mm -hmm. or some set of behaviors and rituals and upbringing and everything. I was raised Jewish. I was never very comfortable, although I was very emotionally attached 
to my experiences of, of some Judaism, but mm-hmm. uh, I never really succeeded in comforting me or, or, or enabling, helping me live my life. Mm. You know, you have to understand that religions, when they began, in the beginning, religion was an applicable way to live your life. In other words, your spiritual leader in the community was not only the spiritual leader, but he was your advisor, your psychologist, your economist, your... He was the person who helped you and said, this is what you need to do today to get through the day. This is what you need to do to get through this time. And people would go to church or to synagogue or wherever they practiced their religion. They would do it every day. To, to that extent, if you look at Islam, people you know, pray five times a day. I would have to say that I probably pray, if you want to use that word, I would have to say that I pray, or meditate is the word, or mm. practice. I practice this way of seeing things that I've, that I've been taught. I practice it all the time. Because awareness, being conscious, is such a valuable, beautiful gift, and it's something that we practice so little of the time. You know, religion becomes uh, a place we go to, a set of uh, beliefs or, or rituals that we adhere to, and we think that's done, it's mm. accomplished. But if we look at what the original intention of religious, of religion or spirituality in our society was, we realized that it was a very, very hands-on way to live your life and to answer your mysteries and answer your needs and, and, mm. and conduct yourself in society. Now, so many religions have become these huge, top-heavy bureaucracies, theocracies with all kinds of rituals and adornments, and they don't really provide people with the wherewithal to live their lives every day. Do you believe that we are reunited with our loved ones after death? Do you believe in that? Do you think you will be? I think we're reunited with that which we come from, which we are, you know, we may, our bodies may die, but, uh, you know, we're all one. We're mm. all here. And the thing we pursue the most in this life is that experience of oneness, that experience of being together. You know, that's, you know, we're like lemmings to the sea. That's what we spend our lives doing. I used to say we live our lives in order to die. Well, if you take away the judgment of what death is, and to the mind, to the ego, death is an anathema. Being helpless in the face of mortality is an anathema to the mind. If you took somebody stuck in a traffic jam, they're late for a very important appointment, and they're banging on the steering wheel, and you said to them, what's the matter? Are you fra- what are you afraid of? They'd say, I'm not afraid. I'm pissed off. I'm angry. I'm, mm. You know? I'm frustrated. Because they don't want to acknowledge the mind, the ego, which it does not want to acknowledge helplessness. As a matter mm. of fact... The mind looks, points at all the things it creates. It creates, it's, look at that building I built, look at that car I own, look at that mm. person I killed. Look at that, look at that set of beliefs that I've created, that all these things I've created in my mind. Look at this world around you and all the things I've created. I am not powerless, I am not helpless. But that dirty little secret still exists that we're helpless in the face of our mortality. So the mind does not want to be reminded of that helplessness. So it creates what we call denial. And it, it calls uh, that fear of helplessness things like anger and depression and sadness and, and compulsion. And it creates all this, other, this, 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 uh, this world of 
of descriptions that uh, bears no resemblance whatsoever to what's really going on. Well, long may you stay healthy and enjoy Thank you life. so much, Peter. That's right. Well, Thank have... you, Peter. I'll look forward to meeting you when I'm uh, over there. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. All, All right. the best. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Take care.